Well, I'm asking you now to turn with me in the Word of God. Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. And uh, our reading is going to be verses 1 through 14. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand now out of respect for the reading of the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons, our daughters are many. Therefore let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were brothers who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. And we are helpless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers. And I said to them, you're exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. I said to them, we according to our ability have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. And now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? Then they were silent and couldn't find a word to say. Again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I likewise, my brothers and my servants, are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain the new wine and the oil that you're exacting from them. And then they said, we will give it back and we will require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. I also shout out in front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise, even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. They praised the Lord. The people did according to this promise. I mean, this morning that we encounter something in our text that is most astonishing. And that is that the walls of Jerusalem have vanished from sight. Yeah, there's a reference to the walls in our passage. If we had read on to verse 16, Nehemiah makes a very peripheral comment about continuing to apply himself to the work on the wall. But that's it. There's nothing else in chapter 5 about the wall. And that ought to strike us as strange. Strange because in chapter 1, it's a thing that he cried about when he heard from Hanani that the walls were broken down and the gates were burned with fire. It's strange because in chapter 2, when the king offered him opportunity to give him request about what he was burdened over, he asked if he would be sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. The first thing he did when he got into Jerusalem in chapter 2 was to have a midnight inspection of the wall. And then subsequently, in chapter 2, we saw him gathering uh, the Jewish leaders in assembly, and he called upon them to remove the reproach of the ruined walls by rebuilding them. In chapter 3, we saw an idealized presentation of the rebuilt walls as we received testimony of 41 construction crews from the whole of the land of Judah, all of them pitching in to do their part in rebuilding the walls. And in chapter 4, we had extended discussion about the wall building uh, in the form of opposition as the enemies of the rebuilding of the wall sought to undermine it through psychological operations and then the threat of military force. All we've been hearing about for four chapters now 
are the walls of Jerusalem. And all of a sudden we come into chapter 5 and they have just simply vanished. And when something is that dominant within a particular narrative of a book, the question we would all logically ask is, why are they gone? What made them disappear? And the answer is what made them disappear from sight in this particular chap uh, chapter is because of the fracture uh, of the unity of the people of God. Instead of receiving testimony about the rebuilding of the walls, what you have here in Nehemiah 5 is the unsavory story of the people of God torn apart by internal strife. Here they are on the cusp of restoring glory. Here they are on the cusp of completing the rebuilding of the walls. And now, instead of facing strife and opposition from uh, external threats such as the enemies of the kingdom of God, now they receive threats and opposition internally from the very people who call themselves the people of God. And so Nehemiah 5 testifies to us about the ripping apart of the community of the people of God. One of the things that implies for us then this morning is that uh, the restoration of the walls means absolutely nothing. The restoration of Zion's glory through the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem means nothing if the people who live inside them behave like pigs. Those walls are just a hollow and an empty hypocritical testimony for a concern for the glory of God. Because those walls merely symbolize the glory of God. And that glory is also symbolized in the way we treat one another. And if we treat each other badly and in gross immorality, God is not glorified. Instead, the whole becomes a reproach. And that's what Nehemiah says. And so if you look at the beginning of our text and the end of our text, we'll note that it is bracketed by reference to disunity and then by restoration of unity, which tells us this text is all about the repair of brotherhood. This is all about the repair of the brotherhood. And we said that we've been preaching a sort of mini-series, haven't we? A mini-series within the book of Nehemiah. We've called it Restoring Glory. And one of the things that I've tried to emphasize about this mini-series of restoring glory through the rebuilding of the walls is that it seems in each chapter, 3, 4, 5, and 6, as Nehemiah pursues the theme of repairing, or rather restoring glory, he does so from a just slightly different vantage point. So one was idealized uni unity as the people of God were at work, and then in chapter 4 it was the church militant as they gathered together with sword and trial to rebuild the walls. And now as you come to chapter 5, we have a different angle, and this one is repairing the unity of the people of God. And the purpose of it all is to say, to teach the church about the necessity of unity in the church for the well-being of the church. The unity of the church is necessary for the well-being of the church. We can multiply numbers all we want and have all the apparent external progress in the world we could ever imagine or dream of. But if the people who are there united together in the name of the church are all at odds with one another, it's worthless. And when we see that happening, it must be repaired. So Nehemiah teaches us about repairing unity through submission of the law of God by grace. Nehemiah 5 teaches us then about repairing disunity through submission to God's law by grace. And we'll unfold that main point under two points, brotherhood and ruin and brotherhood restored. So let's think about brotherhood and ruin. And we can see the ruin, the complaints, and the complaints begin with family outcry in verses 1 and 2 where we see here there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. And the thing that you would stub your toe on in the original, if you saw it, is this word outcry. Because this word outcry doesn't just mean to, to speak out loud. It has the sense of, in the very tones, and the very sounds made by the person 
It is an expression of the deep emotional pain and sorrow of the situation. It is the word that was used to describe the people of God as they labored under servitude and bondage under their Egyptian taskmasters in Egypt. The Lord Himself says to to Moses at the burning bush, I have heard the outcry of the people of God who are in Egypt. He's seen their affliction, the same intense word. The outcry here is interesting because it comes, I think, primarily through the wives. And I would argue that because uh, we get the initial description of the outcry coming from the people, but then the repetition of the description now just includes the wives. And the reason why I think that the outcry is probably the loudest through the wives is because they're the ones who are experiencing all the pain. Remember, the men are in the city. The, the men are all galvanized around the task of rebuilding the ruins. The, the men, we ended the last chapter uh, of, of Nehemiah chapter 4 with, with the report and the testimony uh, that they didn't even change their clothes. They all just slept inside town, inside the city walls. And if they went so much to, to pick up a, lump, uh, a lunch bucket, they, they had a sword strapped on their side. Everybody was in town. And it was the wives, it was the women who were back home on the home front caring for the property and the family. And so they were the ones that experienced the pain. And the pain is very real as you see in verse 2. We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. Here they're speaking about the sons and daughters are many. The suggestion is that these are very large families. They've been blessed by God, by the way, to have large families. But, but you know, um, these are subsistence farmers. They're, they're not the farmers you're going to read about in the subsequent complaints. These would have been the subsistence farmers who were living based upon the produce they could grow on their own land and the few sheep and goats they might be able to raise. And the, the need is, is obviously stark here because it says, let us get grain so that we may eat and live. You see, nothing uh, less than life itself is at stake and on the line here. They need grain not to just uh, to plant the family garden. They need grain in order that they may eat and that they may live. You see, they're, they're not sitting there with their disposable income thinking about which luxuries they, they may afford for themselves. Whether it be new shoes or, or new clothes or adding a, a, a second garage to the house or, or taking a, a trip to the islands. This is not about luxuries. This is about necessities. What will they spend to buy food? Their problem is just getting enough to eat. It's an acute problem. And therefore, it's um, the cause of the great outcry of the mothers who are watching their starving children go without food. Well, the next group we see in verse 3, this is slightly different. There were others who said we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses so that we might get grain because of the famine. Now we're thinking about landowners. These are no longer the subsistence farmers who who were growing leeks and onions in, in the back garden and surviving off of that and trading that. These are the people who had large chunks of land. And, and the problem with them was they didn't have any grain. We don't need to confuse this with the prior complaint. They needed grain to eat and live. This particular complaint is about having enough grain in order that they may seed the field for the next harvest. So these are people who... Uh, because of famine, that's the key thing to note here in the text, it's, it's ravaging the land and ruining the supplies, and therefore the prices of everything are, are skyrocketing through the ceiling. They are being consumed by inflation, and so now what they have to do in order to get enough grain to sow seed for the next harvest is they have to mortgage their land, which means they have to put them up as collateral to somebody who has the money who will give them or lend them the grain for the upcoming harvest. And so these people now are losing their properties, in effect, if they don't get the grain and turn it into a great harvest for the following calendar year. 
And then you come across another complaint in verse 4. Also, there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. And Now, this is slightly different from the prior request. They, they're not running out of food, and they're not running out of grain. What they're running out of is money. And the problem here with being out of money is that they have to pay the tax collector, and the tax collector in this case would have been the Persian king. And the assessments on the land were absolutely, well, they were uh, uh, absolutely outlandish. The, the local Persian official would come by and look at the field or the vineyard, and he would assess that it could grow so much of this or that crop. And it was taxed based on that, whether it was a realistic assessment or not, and whether the land actually produced that fruit or not. And we know from records from that era that uh, have been uncovered from the sands that the tax rates were anywhere between 40 to 60 percent. 40 to 60 percent. And so what they had to do, because they didn't have enough cash on hand, was to go to the local bank and take out a very generous loan so they could pay the IRS. Now, you're in bad shape if you're taking out loans to pay back Uncle Sam. You'll never win. The system is set up against you. It literally is. Once you are in debt to the government, to pay it back with all of the interest and excise penalties and fees, you literally cannot get out from under it, which means now that your land, which is on the line as collateral for the loan, goes to somebody else. You go from land-owning to land-less. And that's where we really hit the depth of the charges in verse 5. Our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers. Our children are like their children, yet behold, we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already, and we are helpless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. Now we get into the depths of the sorrow and the misery and which causes all the outcry here is that family is selling family into slavery. It's gut-wrenching to think of these mothers as they come before Nehemiah and express their most sincere and deep and heartfelt sorrow over what happened, that because there wasn't enough money to pay the bills, they had to take their, their precious little sons and daughters and hand them off to strangers and sell them into slavery. And you say, well, what kind of what kind of mother would do that? And the answer is the kind of mother doesn't have the dad at home to pay the bills. They effectually have become single mothers who are trying to foot the bill on their own because the men of the house are away in Jerusalem working for free. And now there's not enough money to pay the bills and in order to keep the farm so that it doesn't leave the family in order there may be some way maybe in the future to buy their children back out of slavery, they do the most unthinkable thing a parent would ever do, which is to sell their children into slavery. And it was horrific. And you can feel the accent of the text is particularly about the sorrow and the pain felt about selling the daughters into bondage. You see, under Old Testament law, you could sell the son into slavery and the son would either be there until the debt was paid off or no more than the seventh year, uh, then they would have been released from the servitude and they'd go back home with, uh, with their life. But not the female. When the daughter was sold into slavery, it was permanent. Because usually it was a situation when the daughter was sold into slavery, the person buying her would make that girl his wife, whether she liked it or not. And if he already had a wife or too many wives, then he would arrange for that girl to marry one of his sons. And if the son didn't like her, he would have taken another wife. Well, he just kept her as part of the harem. But the point of it is the mothers are contemplating the loss. They haven't just lost their sons, they've lost their daughters. And when they've lost their daughters, they've lost them for life. And they haven't just lost their daughters, they've lost their grandchildren that would come from them. But what is even worse is their sons and daughters were not just being sold to other Hebrew or Jewish families. 
They were being sold to other Jews who sold them to pagans. People who had no regard for the law of God at all. And it meant that those mothers grieved because they feared they'd never see their children again. There's real sorrow behind this. There's real ruin in view here. And there's no way out of it. Because as the text says, we're helpless. Literally, the text reads originally, no power in the hands. You see, if they could just put their hands to do the work, they could solve it. If they could just... um, if they could just punch out on the clock um, after a 12-hour shift every day, six days a week, maybe they could solve the problem. But the text has a way of putting in a very picturesque way, there's no power in the hands. In other words, there's no ability, humanly speaking, to remedy the situation because they've given up everything by way of mortgage in order to pay the bills and it all failed. The families are experiencing great ruin. What makes it so painful and so awful is who the perpetrators are. They're Jewish brethren. You see it for yourself in verse 1. There was great outcry of the people and of the wives against the Jewish brothers. This has to mean the, the elite. It couldn't have been all of the Jews within Judah. That would make no sense. It had to have been. Uh, the elite, the bankers, the creditors, the people of wealth or means, the nobility, and that's precisely who we read about as we read on to verse 7, as Nehemiah calls them, the nobles. But what really uh, wrenches the gut is the description that you have in verse 5, where their identity is amplified like this. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, that is, the Jewish brothers. Our children are like their children. You see, we are all, we're all flesh and blood. We're all the same race. We're all of the same church. We all belong in the same covenant. We all share the same belief system. Their children are just children like mine who like to run and play ball and skip and, and go down to the lake and enjoy the life of a child. They're all the same, and yet what you're doing to ours is you're exploiting them. You're taking them as slaves. And worse yet, you're selling them to pagans. You are treating our children like they were just a piece of meat. They were just a business deal. That's the problem. The outcry isn't because the hand of providence has been heavy. The outcry is because the people they should have been able to count on in their sufferings and in their need were the very people who were engaged in exploiting them. And that was causing the ruin of the brotherhood. The obvious complaint here is that the unity of the people of God has been fractured. And what makes this stand out so sharply is the the professed, Unity of the people. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 18, after Nehemiah gives this very fiery speech down at the local union hall as he gathered all of the trade guilds and the skilled workmen and the nobles and the farmhands and everybody into this big building, he gives them this very impassioned speech about the need of of repairing the ruins and restoring the walls and Uh, replacing the reproach. And at the end of it all, the people galvanized together with one heart and one mind and one voice said, let us get up and rebuild. It's a tremendous picture of of the unity of the saints ready for action. It was that idealized picture of chapter 3 where 41 construction crews from all across the land gathered together to rebuild the walls and gates of Jerusalem from head to toe in A to Z. And the picture is everybody picking up their lunch pail and putting an axe or a pick over the other shoulder and whistling while they went to work. And yet here as you come to chapter 5, five minutes into the project, there's a great outcry. 
Because that unity was a farce. And the brotherhood lie in ruin. And the ruin was because of sin. We've spoken in purely monetary terms up to this point. How many passages of the Bible do we we get banking terms like mortgaging? We don't. You see, the initial presentation of the text is, um, this is a financial crisis. But the ruin isn't financial. The ruin is on account of spiritual and, and moral terms. They're behaving like pigs. Always reminds us, people of God, that as precious as the unity of the church and the people of God is, well, its ruin is as near as our own sin, which is always right next to us. We can all believe the same doctrine. We can all know we're saved in the same way by grace. We can all be united in the same covenant and bear the same token of unity, which is baptism. We all worship the same God in the same way. We're all governed by the same Word. But sin is always crouching at the door. Sin is always crouching at the door. One of the great aims of Satan is to divide and conquer the church. Divide and conquer the church. Because he knows a church that is united together in the joy of the Lord is a church that will be prospering and abounding spiritually in Christ and be useful for the kingdom of God. And you see here, this once unified body was busy at work as now, well, all of it's come to a grinding halt. Because now everybody on the wall who was doing their job has to about going home to take care of mama and the kids see what they can do about getting the family farm back. All because of the sin of their brethren. So we've seen the brotherhood in ruin. Now we see brotherhood restored. We begin uh, with that theme or portion of our text in verse 6. And I, I find it, um, well, I find it just absolutely transparent. And um, uh, I think it's just a great testimony uh, to Nehemiah, it's quite complimentary. And I know he's the author of this book, but the, the Holy Spirit is really the one who's moving, right? And the response of Nehemiah is so commendable. Then I was very angry. And you know, um, this is one of those very pictorial terms because it's so visceral. It, it means to boil over with rage. He wasn't just sort of displeased. He wasn't just sort of clenching his jaw. This is rage. Rage under control, but it is rage. And the reason why he's angry is because of the outcry. And that tells us then that he is angry over the conditions of the people of God, the little children who are starving, the farm owners who've mortgaged their property away in order to get grain, and for the people who had to take out loans to pay 40 and 60% tax rates in order that they may keep their land. And all of it was on account of the extortionists of the Jewish brethren among them, who were the bankers, who forced them to pay outlandish interest rates, which would ensure they failed. You see, it was anger over the conditions of the people, but even more, it was anger over sin. It was anger over expectation. And as I read uh, this account of Nehemiah about what he did and how he reacted, I couldn't help but thinking of those great words we just saw in Ephesians 4.26, and it's purely the providence of the Lord today. That was our law reading where the Apostle Paul tells the church to be angry and yet to not sin. Nehemiah was righteously angry. We could call this virtuous anger. In fact, we could say it's exemplary angry. If there was ever a time to be angry and to not sin, it should be over the exploitation of others. The kind of exploitation that would require a mother to make the awful and horrific decision to sell her daughter into slavery to save the family farm. 
evil ought to make us angry. That's one of the things I want us to take as way of application. I normally didn't even do it at this point in a message, but one of the things that we all ought to be thinking of right now is we ought to be aroused to anger when we hear about such terrible exploitation. And I'm afraid that we've heard far too long that we're to turn the other cheek and to love our enemies, that we don't have time, nor have we heard of a verse like this, which commands anger. And I know there's a good reason probably why we don't hear this verse too often, because far too many of us have a problem with anger. I don't need to be nudged at all for this to go very badly. And Paul's warning was was emphatic and, and it was immediate. He said, but you, you keep that anger under control because the, the devil is right there at the door. We've all seen situations when anger got out of control. And when anger gets out of control, it's because Satan is there. And when Satan is there, you can believe those emotions will become so distorted that the house is going to get burned down with fire. That's just what happens. That's not righteous. That's unrighteous. But that's not what Nehemiah did. He got angry. And the reason why he was angry is because he understood what the law of God required. And what the law of God requires for one brother to the other is precisely what John tells us in 1 John chapter 3. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's the law of God. And you can't say, oh, Pastor Sotel, but that's the New Testament. I'll remind you that the Pharisee came trying to trip Jesus up and asked him what was the great commandment of the Old Testament. And Jesus says, you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's not New Testament. You see... When a brother sees another brother or sister in their suffering and in their need, and they have the ability to help it and they don't, John says that is a testimony of a loveless, cold, unregenerate heart. That's a person who's not acting like a child of God. That's the anger. The brothers are not treating brothers like brothers. And if you want to just interest, if you want to just see how profoundly important this idea of brotherhood is to, to Nehemiah, just count up in our text the number of times the word brother shows up. The text is replete with references to brotherhood because this is the issue. That is what unites us. This is what unites us is that we are all in the family of God because we have been adopted as His sons and daughters by grace. The foundation of this great relationship which we share is is not us. It's the bonds of Christ's blood. And that means we can never be indifferent to one another. We can. We break the law all the time in this room, but we're not supposed to be. And this is what has angered him. And so Nehemiah composes himself and he does exactly what a leader should do. He confronts it. Look at verse 7. I consulted with myself and I contended with the nobles and the rulers and I said to them, you're exacting usury each from his brother. Therefore I held a great assembly against them. <laughs> well, we saw verse 6, he, uh, <clears throat> he got a little fiery, okay? But in verse 7, I think it's quite instructive that the first word is, I consulted with myself. Now, this is not... <laughs> I think we understand the comment, right? I had to... <clears throat> I had to go outside and kick the tree a couple of times, all right? I, I, I had to fume and let the smoke and the gas out and the smoke come out of my ears for a minute. I consulted with myself. It's a euphemistic way. I took a walk and I calmed down, okay? But that didn't mean he forgot. He was, he was, he was managing his anger so that it was righteous and not sin. Because he needed that anger to be directed at ungodliness and unrighteousness and the horrific problem that it was causing 
in the community. So he said, I consulted myself and I pondered in my heart. He assessed the whole situation. And then he brought the legal con the charges. And we can see that from the verb contend. It means to bring a lawsuit. It doesn't mean to engage in contention, which would be strife or conflict. The verb literally means to bring forth a lawsuit. As the governor of Judah, that was his legal responsibility and authority. The next thing that reinforces the idea of legal confrontation is this assembly. He held a great assembly, and notice it says, against them. In other words, he convened the court. He called all of the people who were the co-conspirators, and he brought them into the assembly hall where the rest of the people of God sat as the jury listening in as he prosecuted the case. And it's quite interesting that he did it. I think it's quite bold because after all, I just remind you of what uh, Nehemiah is here for. N Nehemiah is, is in Jerusalem for one thing, right? Is to rebuild ruined walls. And this is a crisis moment of leadership because... If it goes badly, the whole project is over. And he goes back to the Persian king with the proverbial tail tucked between the legs, looking like he's a complete loser. Because, you see, if um, on the one hand, he, uh, he doesn't listen to the outcry of the working class and the families and the farmers, uh, yeah, he'll keep the nobility. He'll just have lost all of the workforce. Good luck on getting the job done. If, um, if he comes down uh, on the side of the workers and uh, alienates the nobility, well, he's got a whole lot of people that know how to carry an axe and a pick and a shovel, but there's no money to buy the bricks. The wall's still in ruin. And it's quite obvious that he knows the... He, he understands the dilemma which is in front of him, but what he does is he has confidence in the law of God. What he has is confidence in the law of God that if, if he brings the law of God home upon their conscience in, in an accurate and wise and prudent way, the Spirit of God will take care of it. And so he brings the law. And that's what you find here in the accusation. Notice that this is a charge. He says in verse 7, you are exacting usury. And that was strictly forbidden under the law. Exodus 22.25 If you lend money to to the poor among you, you shall not charge him interest. Can you imagine how that would change the entire banking system today? You, you can loan all day long. You, you're, in fact, you're obligated to loan. Just no interest. To do so, to, ex, to exact Interest was to engage in usury. And that's exactly what's in view in verse 3 with the mortgaging. That's exactly what's in view in verse 4 with the borrowed money. And that's exactly what's in view at the end of verse 5 when it says we've, we're helpless because of our fields and vineyards belong to others. So he blasts them with the law. Exodus 22, uh, 25, you shall not engage in usury. And then in verse 8, he charges them with getting rich off the public coffers. I said to them, we according to our ability have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now would you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us? And you have to understand what's going on here. It seems as if the wording of Nehemiah implies that since he has been on site, and perhaps even before that, that there was a community fund that the people of Judah chipped into. So that if it did come up, when somebody became so impoverished that uh, one of the Jewish boys or girls or even the men had to be sold into slavery to pay their bills, and they were transferred not just to another Jewish family, but sold to a pagan, that this community fund would be used to redeem them and to buy them out. That's what he's talking about here. We, according to our ability, have redeemed our brothers who were sold to the nations. See, this is the issue. This is where the deepest sort of visceral pain and sorrow comes from. That it's not just that they were sold into slavery. That's 
awful. But the horrific thing is that they were taken from outside of the covenant community and placed into the family of a pagan. And that meant the ladies, the young girls were lost for life. And this is what he rattles their cages over. We have been all chipping in. Every one of us have been chipping into this fund. And you are selling these people off so that they will be sold back to us. What's the concern? Well, the concern is that these Jewish brothers are shrewd businessmen, right? They know that if the community is committed to buying them back, that that means a good return on their investment, right? If they sell those little children to the pagans, those pagans know the Jewish community is going to want them back eventually, and that means they can, they can require top dollar. But where's the money coming from? Well, it's coming from everybody. It's coming from all the taxpayers. They're getting rich off all of the taxpayers. And then they arrogantly strut around with all their cash and float loans at high interest in order to enrich themselves even further. So he charges them from getting rich off the, of the covenant coffers, if you will. And then finally, you see here, he charges them flat out with immorality. Verse 9, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of God because of the reproach of the nations and our our enemies. The charge of immorality is just very clear. Not good. That's a moral assessment. It's not, well, it's not preferable. No, it's, it's, it's evil. If it's not good, it's evil. It's a moral category. And he really lays down uh, the hammer here because he says, should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations? In other words, the nations are looking at what they are doing, selling their own brethren into the homes of pagans and even the people who don't share their beliefs look at it and they regard it as a reproach. They say, what kind of a religion do you have? What kind of God do you worship? What kind of covenant do you belong to? If you would sell your own children to people who don't share your faith at all just so you can make extra money. He said, shouldn't the fear of God grip you? Is, is money such a great God to you that, that you would bring reproach upon the Lord? That's the charge here. It's gross immorality because it's a violation of the law, but it's even more gross of a kind of immorality because of what it says about the Lord before the nations. They are corrupt. And so, he moves from the legal charges now, and notice in verse 8, they were silent and they couldn't find a word to say. So he moved on. He felt like he had their ears, you know? And so he calls for repentance, and notice the repentance is thorough in the form of, of restitution. Verse 10, stop the usury, he said. And likewise, I and my brothers my servants are lending money and grain. Please, let us leave off the usury. He says, I'm loaning money too, and so are some of my brothers. But we're not charging any interest. He says, that's what you're doing. He says, stop the usury. You're violating the law of God. Then verse 11, he says, return the pledges. Give back the very day the fields, the vineyards, the olive groves, the trees, and also the hundredth part of the money and the grain, the new wine, the oil that you are exacting from them. There's two things they are supposed to do here by way of restitution. Number one, they're to give back all of the lands. And it's spelled out here, the vineyards and the fields and, you know, all that. That was a lot of stuff. These Jewish brothers were getting rich. He says, give it all back like it's the day of Jubilee. But more than that, he says, return the interest. See, they were not just taking their stuff, they'd also returned them interest. That's what this hundredth part means. This hundredth part, there's all kinds of debate in the commentaries what it means. Maybe 10% a month or 1%. There's 
there's a lot of confusion about it because it's not entirely clear, but the force of it is clear enough that whatever they've charged them by way of interest, they have to give it back to them. And what's so interesting about the call to repentance here is that it includes restitution. In other words, the call to repentance is so clear that we can evaluate whether they were truly repentant or not because the thing that he required of them would damage them in the worst part, which is their bank account. You can tell a lot about a person by how they think of money. These people obviously loved their money. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been lending and taking and exacting usury. And he says, we can measure your repentance by how you handle your bank account. Will you give everything you took, all of it back? This was real repentance. And he demanded compliance. And we see that in verse 12. We will give it back. And we'll require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. It's really astonishing. Because um, this is everything to them. And I think this is a real sign of humility. I think it is a real token of repentance that that those who had been so thoroughly indicted and, and so fully convicted and shown to be wrong had the awareness about themselves and, and the humility after hearing the whole case to say, we'll give it all back. And we'll require nothing. You see, that reminds us this morning, people of God, that real repentance isn't just saying sorry. Real repentance isn't just saying sorry. Real repentance is to bring forth the right words, but also the right acts. The real change of life, the real amendment. The returning of what you've stolen. Helping somebody where you hurt them. Nehemiah required all of that to make sure that the wound could get healed. This was critical. If this didn't happen, there would be no restoration of unity. There'd be no brotherhood. He did something that shows us why we love Nehemiah so much. Okay, look at this. Uh, They said, oh, we'll give it back and we'll do exactly as you say. And so here's our brother Nehemiah. So I called the priests over and they took an oath from them that they would do exactly as they promised. Isn't that great? This is a man of hard-headed common sense. He understood that after all the good intentions were off, there's a problem with most of us as our memories get short. But you can get anybody to, do the, to, to come forward at the campfire when the stars are up in the sky and the, the songs have been emotional and some powerful moving testimonies. Have, have, but you, can get, you can get a lot of people to say the right thing at that time. What are they going to do tomorrow? Nehemiah knew that this was a part of the way people act sometimes. And so he knew that there might be a lot of good intentions in that assembly. But he says, I'm going to put you under oath. If any one of you fail to bring forth what you've promised, God's going to return it on your head. All of it worked out pretty well. Look at verse 13 where we have a great expression of restoration. I shook out the front of my garment and I said, Thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. That's not the uh, restoration part. okay? That's the preliminary. And, and here's the almost... Um, it's, it's unheard of. Look, everybody heard that and it said, and the whole assembly said, Amen. You know, this is a severe threat. The shaking out of the robe is, is to say, I'm going to make sure as the governor of Judah under the king of Persia that if you fail to uphold your word, everything you said is going to come crashing down on your head. And we're going to take eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You got that? And the whole assembly in the context of that said, Amen. <laughs> That's healing. That's restoration. There wasn't a descending vote. There were no hanging chats. 
They all knew what the vote was. It was unanimous. And then they praised the Lord. See, this is another indicator of the full spiritual restoration. They all then together praised the Lord. And likely they they struck up a hearty chorus of, of Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil that's poured out upon Aaron's head that descended upon his beard and his aprons. It's like uh, Hermans do. God commends his blessing there. Life forevermore. You see, they worship the Lord. And then we finally get promises kept. According to this promise. The main point of our text, I said, is the disunity in the church is repaired through submission to the law of God by grace. I think that's what we have here. I'm going to be, I want to conclude with just a few points of quick application. And one of them uh, that I want to make here is godly leadership is essential to the unity of the people of God. Godly leadership is essential to the unity of the people of God. Here, Nehemiah is the leader, and he was the one who was obligated under God's law and under law of the Persian king to make sure that the breaches were healed up. And he had a, a very difficult and tenuous and delicate situation in his hand. Either way in which he decided this, it could have gone very wrong. But here, he chose principle over pragmatism. And instead of, um, of siding with uh, the nobility who he needed, he sided with morality. You see, this is what a godly leader looks like in action. He saw the sin and he rebuked it. He demanded repentance and real restitution. I see in this the duty of a, of a ruling elder under Christ in the New Testament. You see, this is exactly what Paul did to Peter. When the church in Galatia was being ripped apart, when uh, its unity had been replaced with disunity because of the false doctrine and the false teachers, uh, the Apostle Paul took Peter in front of the assembly and the Word of God said, I, I provoked, I rebuked him straight to his face before them all and said, how dare you play the hypocrite. The rebuke was the means of the restoration and we see that this is uh, the duty of, of godly leaders, of pastors and elders, to intervene with rebuke when sin and internal division is caused by gross immorality in the church. If that doesn't happen, guess what will happen? The church will not just divide, it will fracture and wither away. There's no way around the process and the unpleasantness of the rebuke because it is the means appointed for the restoration. And so as members of the congregation, you must stand ready to receive a rebuke for sin if your sin is causing disunity in the congregation. To refuse to receive that is to stand over the Word and not under it, and it is to stand over Christ and not under Him. Because He, he mediates His rule through His Word in the church. Nehemiah shows us what leadership looks like and how essential it is. The other thing that I think we should learn from our text is walls are useless if there's hypocrisy ruling the inside. Walls are useless if hypocrisy is ruling on the inside. We could erect whatever walls we want. But if the inside is rotten and the relations are ruined and gross sin is being per, uh, perpetrated and people are being victimized and exploited, while we all call each other brothers in the Lord, sisters in Christ, it doesn't matter what our walls look like. Because from the inside will destroy a church while it confesses every right thing under the sun. Leave that revelation. Chapters 2 and 3 are written to true churches with all the right doctrines. But sadly, all the sinful practices. We need to be careful to maintain the walls while we maintain the soul and what's right. God would have us be one. The final thing I take from our text is the triumph of God's grace. 
it's very true that uh, the unity was repaired through the law of God. But the law of God by itself didn't do it. The law of God by itself didn't do it. It was right that Nehemiah addressed them with the law. He convicted them of usury. He indicted them for immorality. He charged them with stealing from the public coffers. That's the law. He, had, he was right and exact and precise in his use of the law. But you know, people of God, we all know this. We can hear the thunders of the law all day long, and it will never change us unless the Spirit of God, moved by grace, takes the Word and sinks it into the heart like an arrow. You see, there's, um, there's great repentance shown here. There's great fruit of repentance in the restoration and the restitution. But what it tells us is that it was the grace of God which was the cause of it all, as he worked through the word and through the law and through the declaration of righteousness that God moved graciously upon the hearts of these nobility and convicted them of sin and drove them to humility and to bring forth the fruit of repentance in their life. And that's where we end today. And that's with good news. People of God, we should rejoice in this picture of repentance because what it tells us this morning is there's good news for us if we need to repent. There's good news for us this morning if we need to repent. If we have sins in our own life this morning that we have not dealt with, that we have not crucified, that we have not repented of, that we have not changed, then we need to be persuaded this morning to cry out to God to move us by grace. Because those sins will not eventually just affect ourselves. They will affect everyone around us. And so as we hear of this story of God graciously moving upon the hard hearts of these Jewish businessmen to bring them to real repentance and amendment of life, what it causes us to think about this morning is our own need to cry out to the Lord for His mercy upon us. So that we'll repent too. Are you nursing a grudge this morning? Are you holding something against your brethren this morning? Like a credit? In the way these Jewish brothers were holding mortgages over the heads of their fellow brethren? Are you sinning against God and your neighbor by doing what's clearly prohibited in the law? Are you bringing reproach upon the church by your actions? Well, if we have these or any other sins in our life this morning, the call of Nehemiah through the law is the same as it was to them. To stop. He said, stop doing this. It's not good. Shouldn't the fear of God guide your actions? You see, we need to be persuaded of the sin and then cry out to the Lord that He would have mercy and move us to that same repentance in order that we would not be like Esau who uh, sought his lost birthright with tears, but as those who with tears of true spiritual sorrow mourn our sins before the Lord, seek the grace of the Lord Jesus, enjoy the covering over in His precious blood, and then by His grace, bring forth the fruit of real repentance that it may glorify God and bless our neighbor. That's what we're called to. And you can be sure that if you do that, that God will grant you the abundance of His grace in order that the fruit of His Spirit will shine in you and in us and will bless our church. Father, we thank You, Lord, for this uh, testimony of ruin repaired. And we understand how precious the unity of the saints is before you, our Heavenly Father. Convict us of how, uh, how important and how precious it is and what a blessing it is. And Would you strengthen us to, to seek to not to want to wound one another, but rather to bless, to speak those wholesome words, to build up with gracious and righteous actions and prayers. 
But Father, we know that uh, because of our sin and our willfulness, uh, we quite often do things which are, um, which, are, uh, which are corrupt and which hurt others. And so we pray that you would use your word also in our midst this morning to repair the ruin that sin may have caused and that we would all know uh, the grace and the joy of it all as you, will you move upon us by the power of your spirit to bring forth the fruit of repentance that it would, it would be for the good of our souls and the good of your church and then above all to the glory of Christ our Lord who is the King and Head of this church. It's in his name we pray. Amen.